Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nana. How are you? Thanks, Andrew. How are you? I noticed you stuffed the agenda full of cases today. Yeah, got to make things a bit more interesting, I think. So my idea of having four or five cases that's out the window these days? No, I think that's what clients are here for. They want to hear about the new weird <laughs> stuff that's happening in the world. Well, look, when we're talking about weird, I mean, nothing is as weird as the Victorian state government. We'll come to that a bit later mm. for our major topic about workers' comp. But we have some pretty odd cases. Let's go to the first case straight away, which is Hardacre. Yeah. Case of a 72-year-old man who was sort of pushed quietly out the door with an anarium and no proper communication. No. So it was another issue with performance management. So the the business wasn't doing well financially. One of the directors had to step in as a general manager role and had been monitoring performance of this long-standing employee, been there for 16 years. I don't know how they could do that. But basically he had a poor attitude, low quality of work, and kind of did performance management, would have talks him, sent emails saying, look, you're not doing great, but nothing formally committed. Yeah. And then decided to offer him this. Made one made, he made one big mistake though that really triggered it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, the employee did, yeah. yeah. He signed them up for some promotional. Um, 14 grand of promotion. 17,000, made like that. Yeah. yeah, but didn't get authorisation in a time when the business was going untucked. So, yeah, that was the tipping point. And instead of officially terminating the employee, he had a coffee meeting with him and said, look, things aren't really working out and came up with this weird alternative arrangement where he was going to pay him out for four weeks and then offer him an honorarium on top of the pension. Yeah, maximum payment he could have for the pension. <laughs> yeah, you're probably realising at that stage you are terminating an employment and that's really what the case is about is yeah. when did termination occur? For a yeah. And... It wasn't clear to the employee because when he then asked, oh, can I take annual leave? And he didn't understand this whole thing at all. And so he filed an unfair dismissal and the Fair Work Commission found, well, the dismissal came in those exchange of emails where it said you don't need to come back. (laughs) (laughs) At all? Yeah. But I think the big thing that this case stands for is one of the biggest issues was the lack of performance management for a performance-based termination. And the excuse that the employer used was, he, in his culture, he was ethnically Chinese. He said that he could never be so direct to someone of such significant age to give them a direct warning. Like it was against his culture and he could never do it. And <laughs> I love what the Fair Commission said. They were so, so direct. They basically just tore that apart and said, it doesn't matter what your culture is or how culturally awkward it could be. The Australian laws say that the obligations are you have to be clear when you're performance managing and direct. And the other part is it couldn't have been a redundancy. No, yeah, that, that argument made no sense. Yeah, yeah. so they ran as a redundancy, but then they... But they never told him it was a redundancy, redundancy. yeah. Yeah, so let's move. I, I, all I want to say about this case, though, the interesting part of this case is a lot of people, when they're having difficult conversations, as they describe them, I don't think they're that difficult, but when they're having them, think they have to be nice. And skirt around the issue. Sure. Whereas what people crave, and that includes the person on the other side you're having the conversation with, is certainty. Yeah. And so be yourself, but be direct. Make sure that what you're saying you do is what you do. Because in this case, had they done the performance warning, I suspect the guy would have left. Okay. But look, let's jump ahead to the next case. And I'm looking at it now as I talk to you now. It's <laughs> Funny case, Joe Carroll, isn't it? Yeah. So this one involved a trainee disability carer who was stood down because 
they weren't accredited, yes. which is a big problem, as you know, Andrew, yeah. you worked in that sector before, and basically just went off for being stood down, wrote them confrontational emails, phone calls, demanding that they withdraw the stand down, and the employer kind of... Just if I can just stop, and there's this one other issue, mm-hmm. and that is they only gave him two days to fix his accreditation. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. they decide to terminate two days after standing him down yeah, yeah. because they said it was because of that stuff, but it's actually because they had an audit coming back up and they were worried the fact that he wasn't accredited. Yeah. Crazy. And you won't be surprised to learn that the commission in this case said, look, two days really to be re-accredited? Mm. Hardly fair. No, and not reasonable as well. I know. But, look, the funny part about this, remember I keep coming back, we had a couple of cases like that this week. Clearly at the end of it, an unreasonable method of termination, okay? But a valid reason. But a valid reason. Yeah. But $1,500, two weeks. So you've got to wonder in all this case, all the cases here, because the lesser periods of employment, the actual awards are very small. And so, as Nina and I have said, you know, the law is one thing, but sometimes you need to chance your arm a bit. Here they chanced their arm. It was a stupid way of doing yeah, it. And they kept running yeah, it. I don't and think they really paid him true. four or six weeks. It would have gone away, but they then ran a hearing and then had to pay him two extra weeks. So they paid probably ten times that amount just by not being commercially wise. Yeah, and he was a trainee as well. So yeah, Dumb as dumb. Arvin and Bunnings. Oh, yeah. This is the Rosetto argument. Yeah. Obviously quite experienced litigators. So this was about a person whose employment was terminated as a casual employee, mm-hmm. okay? And the question is, was he systematic and regular systematic? Can I say that's the words under the Act? Mm-hmm. So a decision made at common law in Rosetto as to casual as a person who is employed under a casual contract. Remember, that's what Rosetto said, and there's a similar case that talks about contractors as you go to what the words in the contract doesn't change what the Fair Work Act says no. and the case law around the Fair Work in what is regular and systematic casual. This guy was unquestionably a regular and systematic employee, and therefore Bunnings lost. Yeah, so it's going ahead. <laughs> so that was a jurisdictional argument that was being run saying, no, not a, they're not a regular and systematic casual because the contract says they're a casual, and the court said that's not the test that I need to apply. Yeah, you have to look at the actual employment relationship and the conduct between the parties. And he had, I think, shifts every week and rearranged his uni schedule each time for Bunnings. Yeah. Can't be more regular than that. Can can I just say to you, there is a temptation when high court decisions come through to get excited Mm. and think they have a much broader application than they do. Rosado does have a relevance when you're dealing with systematic and regular casuals because it's the starting point to say is the person a casual or not. But then because the test is regular and systematic, it looks at the behaviour to see if it is regular and systematic and that's outside the Rosado test. And the Rosado test which is you go to the contract and read the words of the contract. In common law, whether a casual is not, you'd only go outside of the Rosetto test where the casual contract was not clear and then you'd go and look at future behaviour. But that's not the question that's being asked no. here. So it is a trap for young players. Yeah. The question that's asked here is under the Fair Work Act, is there a jurisdictional argument for saying the person doesn't have a right for unlawful, unfair dismissal because they're not a regular and systematic. And to do that, you look at the forward conduct of the parties. So the reason we raised this case was really to say, look, you hear a lot of stuff coming out, you hear a lot of lawyers publishing stuff, mm-hmm. and they seem to be unilateral statements of fact. The most important thing is the contract. Absolutely true. Contract is really important. But as far as jurisdiction issue, which is not the reason you enter into casual contracts, it's the method by which 
you employ and engage people. Yeah. And it's about the 12-month issue of what is the business case as to whether they're going to be equipped to be a a permanent employee. That's why you look at casual employment as it means, not to try and get around jurisdiction because you'd be a norm to do that. Yeah, and it's not what it's purpose for. Yeah. So anyway, the risotto argument failed and so it should have. Next case is Bailey and the Nanup Family Bakery. Yeah, family business are complex things, and this is a story of a family business being a complex. This is the brother-in-law, was it? Or no, it, it was a family friend. Family but friend. If there's any of these cases that I recommend that you read, please read this one. Like even just in the first couple of paragraphs, <clears throat> the judge goes on about the difficulties with this case because of all the witnesses dialing in from airports. At one point there was a chicken in the background. (laughs) Very funny stuff. (laughs) But essentially this involved a family bakery set up in Nanup, which is a town in WA, about three hours' drive from Perth. The owners were based primarily in By the way, there's nothing that's not three hours from Perth. Oh, really? I thought it was. (laughs) A big (laughs) state. Well, they engaged a manager who was a family friend who was based in Perth and his role was to manage all the operations and to drive for three hours <laughs> to, to Nana on Monday and come back on Friday. A couple of months before his termination, he decided, I'm not going to do this anymore. I think the, the sales are going down, so I'm just going to come to Baker on the Thursday and Friday. He did not notify his, ver- the his version of fashion. Yes, yes, we don't actually know if this is the <laughs> truth. He didn't notify the owners at all, just decided to do that himself. The evidence at trial was it didn't seem to be that he did any work between Monday to Wednesday anyway. The owners soon find out about it and they decided he had abandoned his employment, but they also didn't tell him that. (laughs) They terminated his employment and he found out because of an email they sent to the suppliers that he no longer worked for them. (laughs) So lots of miscommunication here. And so he filed an unfair dismissal and they found well, it clearly wasn't an abandonment of employment. Please don't misuse that thing. We see that done yeah, all the time. Yeah, remember there's a, can I just say, on abandoned employment, you'll see in the old enterprise agreements, in fact, in very old awards, that when a person doesn't attend for three days in way without probably notifying you of that case, you can accept that as abandonment of employment. Mm-hmm. Case law is unequivocal and you can't actually get those clauses into enterprise agreements no. anymore. But abandonment is a deliberate thing. You must have evidence of a deliberate ceasing to be in, ceasing to attend the yeah. business. And that can be by regular emails, contacts. Or like, like when people abscond, like yeah. it's clear abandonment. Yeah, so this isn't abandonment yeah, anyway. No. I just want to be clear that's a it's, a it's a term of art and has a very limited yeah, application. Exactly. But what it was was repudiation of the contract because he had unilaterally changed his terms and conditions of employment and it was within the employer's rights to accept that repudiation. But they should have done it through a fair process in that they should have put it to him and should have had an opportunity to respond. This case is unique, though, because he had a position of power over the owners in that they were based overseas and they had limited English skills. So the procedural fairness stuff wasn't as big a deal in this case and he lost. But I think it's a good reminder to find that any time you have employees who just decided, you know what, the rules don't apply to me, I'm just not going to come into work. There are things you can do about it, but it has to be procedurally fair. Yeah, and look, think it through. If you seek to change your terms of employment and you act upon that, then you are repudiating your contract. That is, you are saying you no, wish, you no longer wish to be bound by the contract you mm-hmm. had. 
Uh, if you let someone do that, if you condone it, you waive a breach and yeah, therefore you create a common law contract which is different, which you can't get around because you let it happen. Yeah. So the issue is at that stage there is a real need to act swiftly when someone does that because if you continue to pay them, particularly pay them, under this changed agreement, it is consideration of the existence of a new agreement. So what you've got agreement. to do is you've got to say, we're unhappy with this, we're going to talk to you, we'll pay you in the interim, but unless we resolve this, we will accept that repudiation and therefore it will be a termination of your will. You will have repudiated the contract. So it's actually quite technically hard piece of law and, and you do need advice because it's very easy to make it up and it has all sorts of impacts if the person has a restraint as well. So great case, but that's not it. We go on. <laughs> we have more cases. Hard to believe, isn't it? Geiger and Port City Autos. Yeah, so uh, this one's really quick. Employee had It'll COVID. It'll have to be because we're 13 minutes yeah, in. Yeah, this yeah, is our yeah, 15th yeah, case. Yeah, it's yeah, right. <laughs> Employee had COVID, didn't notify the employer. Supervisor wrote, oh, pick up your stuff. Text, You're done. Text tools yeah, in the middle of the road. That's it. Pick it up. And he said, I was sick. Doesn't matter. I'll see you in court. Didn't tell the business or HR manager. They found out when the employee reached out for payments and they tried to get him back. He said, no, let's end this mutually. He filed general objections. They made a jurisdictional objection. No, we ended it mutually. No evidence of that whatsoever when they looked at the text and clearly failed. Yeah. Look, interesting case, interesting because Nina's decided the, uh, the funniest cases that she can find, <laughs> but unquestionably. I think it's just a reminder that you could have a rogue employee and you can't just say, no, that's their actions. They are your representatives as an employer. Mm. So you need to ensure that whatever is being done in your name is actually authorised. Yeah, and the other part is someone being sick, not being able to ring you is not a basis for termination. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last, hopefully, the last case, safe work in Osgrid. Now, this one. Second last kind of, case. Yeah, yeah but so. we, can, we can kind of skip this. It's just the fact that. The safety incident happened nine weeks after the similar incident and because they didn't do inadequate steps, it was like a electric pole, electrician and fatality, yeah. inadequate steps led to a 600k fine. Can I just say, you know, when WorkSafe attend your site, the first thing they're going to ask, has there been a similar incident? And they're going to issue a request for documents to look at similar incidents and they're going to inquire as to similar incidents. Yeah. And if you haven't made any steps once you've been put on notice of a risk... Or not enough steps, enough, which is what happened in this case. Yeah, yeah. then I'm afraid you're, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Now, the case that you've been wanting to get to, let's yeah, talk about it. This is case number one. 17. And thank you to Greg, <laughs> Greg Splat for notifying us of this case. The Ramsey supervisors. Yeah, so, look, the employee fell through a hole trying to get a spray can and impaled himself on a pole, he had to go to hospital and made a full recovery but was very traumatised and never returned to work. He won 500000 and there was common law liability. What's more interesting in this case is his mum at the time was contacted and told about the accident. She drove to the hospital, saw him in his injured state and also saw him struggle when he returned home and never was able to return and got a psychological injury. And she filed a nervous shock claim under the Civil Liability Act in New South Wales and actually won $200,000. Yeah. And, look, does this exist throughout Australia? The answer is, with or without legislation, is a mother who comes across a son who's injured without any appropriate support around them with appropriate language and suffers shock, well, let's talk about what is negligence. So negligence is a wrongdoing that is not too remote, so there is a duty that is owed, so we've got the wrongdoing. 
is there a duty owed to a family member in respect of an injured worker? There probably is, and it would turn on the level of circumstances as to what was the risk that mother was put on. Was there a breach of that duty? Well, the breach here was actually doing it in a manner which didn't provide appropriate support around her, him, and the aftermath of the incident. So probable breach. Did the person suffer damage? Mm. The answer is yes. So the only issue is remoteness here. In other words, is the relationship between the mother and the employer too remote? At common law, probably not given the factual circumstance of the case. So the question to Greg, Greg is, could this happen elsewhere? There is some piece of legislation around Australia where it definitely can happen. In Victoria, there is a, a very good argument that it could happen. She won $200,000. Yeah. Won't, won't change how she felt about life. No. Okay, well, let's go to the major topic because we have almost no minutes left for the major topic. Victoria is going to change. New South Wales is already in the process of change because the regulator is running at such a terrible deficit. So there's two major things that are happening in Victoria. One is the idea of a provisional liability set up for certain types of psychological claims. Yes, stress and burnout claims. Stress and burnout claims. There's a reason for that. And by the way, there is a lack of clarity. So we'll have to wait for the detail. But I'm sure the purpose of this is to ensure that insurers with their with their um, skills and capacities wrap their arms around people before a formal psychiatric injury diagnosis is given, and even if it is given, that the proper care happens to get the person back to work and then there will be a payment of up to 13 weeks. And yeah. if the person still has a psych psychological injury after that, then it will become weekly benefits. I think that's what it intends Yes, yeah, that's to what we hope. They yeah. haven't clarified what happens after the 13 weeks. Yeah. Just that they can't get weekly payments at the moment. It's not surprising it's budget time. Victoria needs to get back into surplus. This is one of the, this whole thing is really a money grab to get the regulator back on board. The next one are some pretty concerning changes that have occurred to try and repair the whole of the budget rather than just manage claims appropriately. The first one is to raise the average industry rate by 42%. Wow. So that's that'd be different across different industries, but it, it basically means it's gone from an average of 1.27 to 1.8% raise on the average yeah. one. Mm -hmm. There's another one which is, is hard to explain, but it's pretty simple, and that is there are a number of industries where you sit across public and private, and there'll be a dividing of what is the premium against the nature of the work that's being undertaken public and private, Obviously, that will have a significant change on premiums based on the exposure that exists in public to private. Probably the most concerning one for us when we're dealing with terminating people who are a year or a year and a half in is we often look at what is the premium impact and at the moment the maximum premium impact is 30% per, per annum. So if you've got a low premium, exiting somebody from business with a psychological injury is not going to come back and has been a toxic and digital individual. It's actually financially not a bad decision, but that's going to change the 75%. And 75% compounding is very substantial. Yeah, so if you looked at an average psychological claim for a $10 million turnover business, same in manufacturing, just before the industry change, you're probably looking at premium hit for a psychological injury where a person doesn't return somewhere between five dollars to $600,000 in premium impact. You're probably now looking at over a million dollars. And if you add in the premium push in relation to industries, if your industry goes up higher, be 1.2 to 1.5 for psychological injury. So that is a very significant clawback. Yeah. What's not in this process but is coming is a low cap protection, and that is where Nina is a contractor, works for me, Nina is injured, 
and her boss then has a massive hit on the premium. The insurer acting for Nina's business seeks recovery against me. Is successful, normally what would happen is the total win they have against me would be subtracted from Nina's business premium. So it might have been a $2 million premium, but now it's a $10,000 premium. And because of the 30% maximum, the next year could only be 13000 even though previously they were at a $2 million. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the soft cap or the low cap measure would say no matter what happens, you go back 50% year one, 75%, a way of arching this back up to try oh. and... Now, that hasn't come through, but it's been well and truly discussed, and I think that is definitely on the agenda and will happen, but not in the short term, so maybe in a year or two's time. So what you are going to do, be doing is paying a lot more premium, and the psychological injury part means there will be provisional payments, but they'll be recoverable as well, and they will affect your premium. But the idea is a real focus because of this massive growth of psychological injuries going from 6% four years ago to sort of 35% by 2030 is there's a recognition that WorkSafe, that is the prosecuting regulator, WorkCover, Workers' Comp, mm. are saying you must get these people better. Yeah, which is why they're also going to introduce Return to Work Victoria, which is another separate entity whose role is focus on just getting people back to work. Yeah. So it copies the SA system. Yeah, so you can see that the changes are significant in two levels. One is dealing with psychological injuries to reduce the cost of claims by getting people back to work. Isn't it funny how money talks? <laughs> and on the other side, this gouging hand, just grabbing money yeah. wherever it can. It does feel like that. Okay, well, that's our, that's our summary. Let's get on to the problem. So Matilda had worked at Hair Been Better. <laughs> HMV, a hair replacement and regeneration company. She was a sales and marketing lead. She had worked up a digital and television strategy to engage a market of young men between the ages of 20 and 30 years of age who just started losing hair. Just like me. <laughs> the driver behind the strategy was that hair loss in this cohort could be abated before it became obvious and regeneration technologies deployed, deployed to return the client to a full head of hair without everyone noticing the change. But it was hard to get men of this age to invest. Pride and denial often got in the way. Her boss, Digby, sales and marketing manager, had been underwhelmed by her delay in the output, research and content of the work. It was two weeks late, factual conclusions were assumed, and no market research had been undertaken to verify the targeting process in the planned advertisements. Matilda felt the brief was unfair. She had explained that to Digby. She was just out of university, had only worked in sales before, not marketing, and when she came to him for assistance, was met with a firm but indifferent response. Read the research I gave you. This is a no-brainer. The research had been undertaken by the Melbourne Business School's dean, an expert in marketing. They identified the relevant cohort, the opportunity, and the key language and themes to attract that talent. She had relied upon that research but didn't understand the process and methodologies used in marketing. Hence, her work stuck close to the research but utterly failed as a usable strategy that could be deployed. Matilda delivered her work to Digby four days before it was due to present it to the board of HVB. Digby read it, called her into the office and told her in no uncertain terms how bad it was. He then called in HR and told them to arrange a display meeting two days before the board meeting. As the HR manager left, he looked at Matilda and said she had two days to save her bacon. Matilda left the room in tears, called other friends in marketing and worked on her strategy using their support and advice. But by midnight, she was lost. Her anxiety levels were now so high she had a panic attack and her parents took her to outpatients fearing she had a heart attack. But she kept working. Her friends gathered around her. They helped and with two hours to spare, she handed the brief to Digby. He looked at it, dropped it on his desk and said he will look at it next week because he had to cancel the presentation. 
He then explained her failure to keep him up to date was hopelessly inadequate and he would have to let it go. Three weeks later, he presented a work as to his and received a claim from the board. Matilda was admitted to an acute psychiatric hospital hours after her dismissal. Her mental state was precarious. All right. A hard worker. Yeah. I would not do that for you, Andrew. Okay, ignoring the delay in making the application. So assuming she's been in hospital and she wouldn't mm-hmm. got an extension of time, would Matilda have a strong unfair dismissal claim then? Yeah, he hasn't performance manager at all. But, I mean, if his reason was she's had poor performance, there needs to be evidence that he has performance managed her. Yeah, I don't think it would get up. On, I, I think she'd get up on the ballot. So, you know, sorry, they wouldn't get up on the ballot. Yeah. Don't worry about the other three, harsh, yeah. unjust, unreasonable. It's just not a valid reason because there is no evidence at the yeah. time that what she did has failed because those expectations were never set. Yeah. So this is part of our earlier case discussion that I want if you don't set an expectation, you don't get a valid reason, Okay. Would Matilda have had a strong general protections claim? Now, she'd raised that it was unfair. It was demonstrably unfair, so she'd raised the yeah, safety so she, issue. she made a complaint as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, oh, but if he had, he'd have to have terminated her for that reason, though. Well, that's true. What about the fact that she was... So is he terminating her after she's in hospital? No, not before then. No, he raised it and then he put real pressure on her. So there's an argument there. What about the fact that his behaviour is a psychological hazard in itself? Yeah, that's more of a safety case, though. Mm, still still get in through the general protections door. I don't think breach it would of be as strong. It's a breach of a, breach of a workplace right, have a safe workplace. Yes, but you have to take the adverse action because of that. It's not just you have to breach the workplace yeah. right. Yeah, good. I, I think my gut feeling is my smell would be to get up, but it's a thinner one. Yeah, Next one. Yeah. Strong would Matilda have a claim. strong workers' compensation claim? Winner of a claim. Unbeatable claim? Now, here we go. Did Digby breach safety legislation? If so, what was the breach and what be the sentence? <laughs> if found liable, I think the word two, I just stuck that in because it was late at night. Would Digby's state of knowledge of her vulnerable mental health at the time be relevant? That is, not know it, that she was vulnerable or did know she was vulnerable? No, no. Well, I think there's a whole bunch of psychological hazards he's exposed her to. So he hasn't given her clear direction. He hasn't given her any support when she asks for it. She's clearly a grad who's just come in and doesn't know much information. So in terms of performance managing her, he should have kind of stepped in behind her, given her training, given her That's support. Right. No skill. That. Given work which is beyond the skill. Yeah. Not supported, no reward and recognition for the work that she did do. Lack which of did, clarity. Lack well. of clarity, um, volume of work in a period of time. Yep. There's a lot to it, isn't it? So I think there's a breach of psychological hazard, which means unsafe place at work. Yep. So we've got the Section 21 breach. We've probably got the Section 22, 22 breach as well. as well about monitoring health. Yep. Okay, so anything else? Well, he knew that she was in hospital and didn't, like just in his reaction to it just said, no, your work sucks, basically. Yeah, then use it. I think the big key here is nearly all of us have experienced people who set deadlines and then don't keep them. So here he said, you've got two days to save your bacon, do it. She, she killed herself. She killed herself to do it and then he just dropped it on the desk and ignored it all at work and came up with another reason, something he never expected to do. I tell you, Digby's in a lot of trouble in this case because what he has done is actually bullying. If you look at it sequentially, oh, yeah. there, he's had repeated acts which are unreasonable. In fact, they would hurt, intimidate or humiliate 
and they affect the safety at work. So what you can say absolutely is when you do that, it's prosecutable and we know the regulators will prosecute. But when put on notice, when she says, look, this is not fair, he then takes no steps. So he's moving down the reckless endangerment endangerment step because he is indifferent to the concerns that she raises and he holds a knowledge, whether he's acting on that knowledge, he has a knowledge of her age, her skills, her training. So any step that he says do this in two days is clearly unreasonable because he knows or should know that what he's asking to do she cannot do on her own. And then to ignore the output of that at the end is the final straw. So I think Digby would be guilty of reckless endangerment. Yeah, because he was aware that it was high risk. She said, look, it's unfair, look, I'm struggling, and he's completely ignored high risk. And so the organisation would be liable as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so interesting case not unfamiliar territory. All of us have been through some sorts of those facts in our in our work career. It was worth just fleshing it out to see what you can and can't do. So you've got an unfair dismissal, yes. Adverse action, general protections, maybe. Definite workers' compensation yeah. claim. Remember we said about workers' compensation, say that's the employer size we're talking she about. We could have got enough common law claim too. Good common law yeah. claim sitting in the background. So you're talking about, you know, in a decent-sized business, well over a million just in premium, and that repeats every year. Scary stuff, isn't it? All right. Well, look, Nina, that's it again. Yeah. We've got through. Yeah. Thanks a lot for of cases. Us, everyone. Thanks for the cases. <laughs> <laughs> Just to test whether I can read. And thanks, everyone. Can we have a thumbs up? Yeah. Today? See you All later, right. guys. Bye bye.